CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast with Kate Riga. This is our last uh, episode of the podcast for 2023. It's been quite a year, and at the end of this episode, we're going to discuss sort of what kind of year it was. It's a, it's a funny mix of things, and I did, a, I did a post yesterday kind of trying to take stock of what people are making of this year. You know, there's always that genre of end of the year opinion pieces and essays you know this was the year about this this was the year about that so we're gonna we're gonna get into a little of that but before we do we're gonna touch on some of the significant news events of the concluding couple weeks of 2023 and the first we're gonna start on is you know the 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 ongoing issue that we've had for the last couple years which is donald trump and the criminal justice system and how that interacts with prosecutors and trial judges and probably increasingly in 2024 the supreme court we had one of the first plays at that a week or maybe a week and a half ago when jack smith the uh, special prosecutor who is uh, running these two prosecutions of donald trump one in in Washington, D.C., one in Florida. As you know, the one in Florida, they got this kind of Trump ringer judge who has, how can you say it, basically enlisted in, in, in Trump's legal team and has, it, you know, is managing through a, a, a number of stratagems to delay that case who knows how long. I think everybody has sort of gotten around to the idea that she is not going to allow that case to to come to trial anytime before the next presidential election. So we're focused on the one in D.C., which is really, in many ways, the more consequential and significant one. They're both legally significant, but the fact that Donald Trump stole, misused, maybe shared classified documents in his post-presidency, that's a that's a pretty big deal. Those are that's pretty serious criminal conduct. But it doesn't go to the heart of the constitutional system, right? These are crimes he committed after he left the presidency. The the prosecution in DC is about the insurrection, is about his attempt to remain in office even though he lost the 2020 presidential election. So in that case, Trump has put forward I, I'm not even sure you'd call it a a defense. It's a it's a defense argument that I don't think anyone takes seriously as a constitutional claim. It's part of his attempt to just slow down the process and, if at all possible, kick these cases past the 2024 election and ergo 
if he wins, the cases all disappear. So uh, his argument is basically that a president cannot commit a crime. You know, we're used to the idea that has been, for better or worse, established law in, in the United States or established it's not technically established law. It's not case law. It's based on a Department of Justice opinion, but it has been treated as established law that a president can't be indicted for a crime while he or she is president. It has to wait till after they leave office. So if they commit a crime, the order of events is they get impeached, they get removed from office, and then they get prosecuted. Well, Trump is now arguing that, in fact, even after they leave office, they can't be prosecuted. So in in so many words, the president cannot commit a crime because if you can't be prosecuted for it, it it's not a crime. It, it, it may be a crime in some theoretical sense, but not in a practical sense. So he's made that argument. It is going to the going through the D.C. trial courts and to the appellate courts. But Jack Smith said, look, we don't have time to go through the normal process. Let's just jump this where we know it is going to go ultimately to the Supreme Court. Sort of a power play that he pulled with with Trump's uh, Trump's lawyers. And just a few days ago, the Supreme Court said, "No, we're not gonna we're not gonna jump over the normal order of events." Now, there's some logic to that. You have appellate courts for a reason. That's why they're. That's what they're there for. But as we have discussed in in, in various contexts in, on on this show, this Supreme Court has been pretty happy to jump over normal process when when they want to, right? When they want to get hold of a choice issue for them. But in this case, they they chose not to. Now the other argument is, or not the other argument, but sort of the the counter is that the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Appellate Court has said they're going to move pretty quickly on this. So it may end up getting to the Supreme Court pretty quickly. And if you want to uh, think the best of this Supreme Court, the argument might be, look, we don't really want to, we'd like to see a decision in front of us and then we'll kind of say whether we like it or not. We don't want to be the, you know, writing the decisions here. In any case, that is what we're going to start out with. A significant amount of, of, disappointment and kind of confirmation of people's assumptions about the Supreme Court when they opted not to take up this case. But Kate, what's what's the status and what is what is this decision or kind of, you know, non-decision on the Supreme Court's part mean? Well, I think it's first of all totally unclear how bad this is right now. Um it's hard to spin it as kind of good for the oppositional forces to Trump because all that really matters here is whether the trial date is going to get pushed off and if it'll be pushed beyond the 2024 election, at which time Trump's clear plan is to you know either win or steal the election and then take over the DOJ and kind of make them drop the case. And on that front, it's just not clear yet because... While it would have been best for the Supreme Court to kind of take up this argument and summarily knock it down and kind of continue the the case apace, as you say, the D.C. Circuit is working really, really quickly. So the real question is going to come when they make a ruling, which pretty much everyone expects to be knocking down these immunity claims because, I mean, they're ridiculous, but to knock those down and then that's going to be the sticking point because they could put in some mechanisms to make sure that Trump's appeal has to go fast. You know, say, 
we are putting our ruling on hold for, you know, say 10 or 12 days to give Trump time to appeal to the Supreme Court, but we're not putting it on hold indefinitely. That kind of forces his hand to quickly petition the Supreme Court to take up this question again. And that's the point at which we'll see how far the Supreme Court is willing to go in its assist to Trump. Because at that point, if it really drags its feet and, you know, sets long timetables, then it's it's really clear, right? They're, they're actively working on behalf of Trump. But the other reason I think it's too early to tell that right now is that there were no noted dissents in the order to not take up Smith's request. And that's very strange. Like you would think if this was just purely kind of an act of, you know, the partisan Trump judges being Trump judges, then at the very least, the liberals would write and say, hey, just to make it clear, we all know he's dragging his feet. That's his scheme and we're not about it. But they didn't say that, which makes me think that maybe they're just kind of keeping their powder dry and they think either better to kind of reprimand the court when you have even more of a leg to stand on because they can't even cry. You know, we haven't gotten the appellate briefings yet or anything like that. Or they think they've got enough people on their side that, you know, say maybe some permutation of like Roberts and Kavanaugh or or one of those is going to side with them when it really matters and they don't want to, you know, risk any kind of pissing them off now when it doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, that's the point. I mean, I reacted very negatively when this came out. And I don't don't regret that because I think this is a Supreme Court where we really are entitled to, and to use their language, enjoined to think the worst of them. Right. In every case. However, that did jump out to me that they don't. And and tell me if I'm getting the procedural aspects of this wrong. They don't even have to write a dissent. They can just say, hey, you put in that I didn't agree to this. And and they didn't. And, and that does make me think that it's something like that. There's that there is a I would even maybe even go a little further than what you're saying, that there is that there is a majority understanding here about how they're going to go about this and that it is i assume that that there's some thinking on the court like look we don't want to you know any any jumping ahead of the process we don't want to have any sense that you know we are tilting against him or something like that i mean that's not a terribly good argument because as we as we've said they do it when they want to but you know everybody's trying to bend over to kind of not give any reason for the the you know kind of trump supporters to think the system is you know kind of rigged against them and they're going to just kind of follow the normal process and now let me let me ask you one question i said and you said the dc appellate court is moving really quickly on this what do we base that on what when we say that what are we what facts and evidence are we are we going on when they say they're moving quickly? How they're scheduling kind of exactly. arguments and stuff like that? Right. Yeah. They're, you know, they're scheduling um, these arguments to start January 9th, kind of as soon as you can, whenever everyone's back from, you know, the holiday break. Um, right. Also, this is just how they've treated all the Trump stuff. Like they're moving really, really quickly. Everything they get with him is just on the kind of timeline that with a quote unquote normal case, you'd never see, you know, stuff just moves slowly through course a lot of times. But um, kind of throughout, they've treated this 
really fast when there are kind of questions that arise, you know, like there have been some around different, you know, who can talk about what in terms of Trump's orbit, blah, blah, blah. They generally, they've been dispensing with that stuff within like one to two business days, which is kind of unheard of for courts. Um, right. Yeah. So, so all, all that. And they've also kind of made it clear in their dealings that they are trying to go quickly, that that is kind of a priority of theirs. Now with, okay, so, so uh, they are moving quickly now. Okay. So I, I, I think certainly at the, at the appellate court level, everyone assumes the decision is going to go against Trump just because yeah. the there, and just for our, our listeners, I think our general and proper understanding is that this court on anything that is a close call is going to help Trump. And even some things that are pushing it a bit, they'll help Trump. But on something that is just absurd on its face, they're not going to go there. And we have more than just aspirations or wishing the best. We saw this during the 2020, you know, recount slash, I mean, I I shouldn't say recount, you know, there's a phase in which things were legitimately being disputed or at least litigated. And okay, we saw it then, we've seen it since then. And it just turns the entire system on its head to think that the president can't be held to account for anything ever. So it is almost a certainty that the DC appellate court will say no and no to these claims. Now at that point, Kate, for so the order of events here, Trump loses there, then he he has to appeal that to the Supreme Court. Now he needs to find four members of the court to say that there's anything here to discuss, right? Mm-hmm. So if he doesn't get that, then they just say, no, we're not taking it up. And that's the end. Exactly. And then back to the the trial as as usual, because, you know, remember, this immunity thing is just a tangent from the main kind of goings on. So that resolves right. that and we're back. Right. OK, so and this may shed light on that you know, initial decision not to take it up and the fact that none of the liberals decided to make a a, a public dissent, that it really, it seems highly questionable to me that they have four justices who would say, assuming that the decision goes as we expect, that it doesn't somehow bring up some other issue that they feel needs to be addressed. That decision, if it's what we expect, is so foundational. Like who who would the four be? I, you know, I think there's a real, you know, we we can assume that if there's anybody, it's going to be Thomas and Alito. <laughs> right. But who, Our but usual who, too. But, yeah. Yeah. But who beyond that? I really, I, I really wonder who, who I know. you know, who those would be. Yeah. I'm, I'm so skeptical and it's such a profoundly uncomfortable place to be inclined to think the Supreme Court will kind of do the right thing. But I think what's critical here is, A, this is Trump's Hail Mary. Like this isn't the last chance to kind of bail him out of this case. And I think if, as you said, if the Supreme Court gets a chance to do so on a closer question that doesn't have the entire legal world kind of howling, they probably would. And also, there is the argument that if people on the right want to be vindictive towards Democratic presidents in the future, which they show every sign of wanting to, this is going to make it a lot harder for them to, you know, haul Joe Biden's ass into jail on on whatever kind of Hunter Biden nefariousness they try to bring up. Yep. 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 No, that that's the thing, too. So I think I think that really is the sort of the the best interpretation uh, of the facts we see in front of us that that 
they know that there are not four justices who are who are interested in taking this claim seriously. So no big loss. Now, just for us to understand it. Okay, so we have a we have a March date now. The election is in November. Presumably, it's not a binary thing. Like if you can't do it in March, then it's off to 2025. Right. Do we have a, what is the flexibility there? Can you, if you lose a month, you just put it to April or, or kind of that's maybe actually up to what's on Judge Chutkin's calendar in the spring of 2024. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the problem. I guess it's just, there's limited time, even when courts are moving really quickly, they have limited kind of bandwidth, though this is going to leapfrog everything else on their docket, you know, but part of it is just we don't, not every kind of judicial entity involved is acting like the DC circuit. So right. anyone who's kind of inclined to help Trump out at all can do so in a pretty procedural, you know, calendaring way. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we have, so that presumably we're going to, over the course of January, we're going to get a pretty good look into in, into where that's going, even if it's not resolved, we'll get a sense of like, as you said, you know, how long is he given to, you know, is he given a tight leash for how long is he going to respond and stuff, exactly. stuff like that. So we'll know a yeah. lot more in January. And honestly, if this comes down differently than we're expecting, like, I think there's almost no chance the DC circuit will rule in his favor, not least because, I mean, he's got a panel of two Biden people and one Bush. You know, it, it, he doesn't have a lot of allies there to begin with. But say they, they still rule against him, it goes to the Supreme Court and they say, yes, like we agree with you that presidents are completely immune and everything. I would honestly wonder if that happened, whether the liberal justices were like misled or something, you know, if if they were given some kind of assurance that the conservatives then backtracked on, because I've been really racking my brains. And this is just the only thing that makes sense to me with their silence, because we've had so many of these cases, you know, the shadow docket cases where the conservatives are like, no, we're going to rule in favor of the kind of Republican ideological stance now instead of waiting. And in all of those times, you get the sense that the liberal justices realize that a lot of their writing right now is kind of for posterity, um, is, is to kind of mark out we disagreed with this at the time and so did a lot of other people. So when you guys are building on this in the future, you have a better understanding that this was like a particularly activist set of partisan judges, blah, blah, blah. And they do that consistently, right? On on all of these kind of, you know, whether it be student loan stuff or, you know, any anti-Biden administration stuff, they, they're just really always using the opportunity to stake out the kind of liberal pro-democracy position there. And so it would just be so, so strange if we kind of get to the end of this, the conservatives shock everyone and take up these immunity things and and the liberals were just deer in headlights at it all. Yeah, no, it does. It does seem very unlikely. So one last question on this Trump immunity issue, and it's how, you know, the how the procedure works in the federal courts in a case like this. So let's say everything moves quickly. The Supreme Court says, no, done sometime in January. So we're, you know, back to the races. Everything's moving ahead. Can Trump just keep coming up with new things that restart this whole uh, circuit court to to SCOTUS 
process? Like, you know, do this again 10 times before the trial? Or was this kind of his bite at the apple? How, how does that work? You would think this would be his bite at the apple because it is a question that at least all the judges involved were like, it is important insofar as the answer to the question will determine the rest of the trajectory of the case. Um, it's hard to see at this point him kind of coming up with another one of those out of whole cloth because this is a drum he's been banging for quite some time. And, you know, to some degree, the the judges also do have a say in knocking down some of these delay attempts. I mean, this is like he's breaking new ground and his attempts to slow walk, you know, this case. Um, so I would th- I would think it would be that this is kind of this is the big Hail Mary. And, you know, we'll see the way this goes. I think we're if he loses here and then if everybody kind of responds with alacrity, I think it's going to be a lot harder for him to pull another big break out of his back pocket, at least on this case. Got it. Got it. Okay. So we had other big news on the democracy rule of law front out of Wisconsin uh, since since our last episode. And it's something that in some ways was kind of in the cards or a foregone conclusion since the spring. So walk us through what happened in, in Wisconsin. Yeah, huge news out of Wisconsin, which is that the newly liberal majority Supreme Court took up one of these redistricting challenges, knocked down the state's legislative maps. So those are the maps that control the makeup of the state house, saying primarily that the way that they kind of violate um, state law is that many of the districts are not contiguous, which is kind of a famous part of Wisconsin's super maximal Republican gerrymander is that the districts are just insane looking, you know, like they call them Swiss cheese districts and stuff because they're so contorted to give Republicans a super majority in this, um, you know, 50-50, maybe slightly blue leaning state. So that was only made possible by Janet Protasiewicz's election. Um, And of course, we immediately saw Republicans after her election uh, talk about impeaching her because she had, you know, pretty openly campaigned on the fact that Wisconsin's maps were rigged, which they are. I mean, it's like the least democratic state in the country. So it's the kind of thing where, you know, the, the conservatives were like crying about it in the dissents and saying, you know, this is a partisan mockery, blah, 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 which is like, okay, and, and what has it been under you guys, right? You know, the the kind of famous moment was um one of the conservatives interrupted one of the lawyers who was on the side of the, you know, the voters trying to get new maps. And she said, you know, we all know we're only here because there was a member change on the court, which is like, well, yeah, but <laughs> the only reason we've been where we've been for the past 10 years is because the membership of the court. So it's kind of funny to yell at your opponents for playing politics when you've maintained the worst gerrymander in America for over a decade, you know. So they were the the state legislative Republicans were, as, as, as you said, from the moment of her election, basically threatening to impeach her and they they threatened and then they seemed to go a little soft and just a few days before this decision came down i remember i slacked you an article that basically had uh, robin vos who's the who's the speaker of the state house and kind of the big gop guy in the state basically saying yeah that's not going to happen that's just 
ship has sailed on that. Do we know why, what drove their, you know, not having the, not being willing through, not being willing to follow through on that threat? I've asked around about this before, um, and people seem to kind of just cite that the blowback was more than he expected it to be. And I do think there's probably some truth that in some of these states where the gerrymanders are so tortured, these Republicans do kind of like fool themselves into thinking they are these super popular legislators, which is not really true. He also had a quote after this decision came down that this matter is far from settled. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court will be the last word on this which like I don't maybe he just like doesn't know how court systems work but the US Supreme Court has like no jurisdiction over state level gerrymandering which none of this has anything to do with Wisconsin's congressional maps it's solely the legislative ones so even if you're like an advocate of the most maximal independent state legislature theory kind of thing there's still no jurisdiction for federal courts when you're not at all talking about federal elections. So I don't really know what he's hoping to do there. But I think even if they would try to petition the U.S. Supreme Court for cert, the Supreme Court would say, well, we don't have jurisdiction over this. So thanks well, for it, thanks for writing. Isn't there, I mean, one of the big, you know, the 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 big one man, one vote jurisprudence, which I guess was in the 1950s, had to do with, I mean, that that was about, you know, the old system where you basically had the kind of the equivalent of an electoral college in many states where, where you know, rural districts had, uh, you know, 10 times as much influence as an urban district. But as a practical matter, it's not happening. So we don't know what he's I, you know, there there are some arguments you can you can get there, but as a practical matter, that's done. I mean, do we know in Wisconsin? I mean, the ruling from the state supreme court was you know new maps and new maps in time for next year. So and you know as these things go, that's a pretty that's 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 a pretty quick timeline. Now, do do we know our are both parties kind of acting on the assumption now that there will be new and relatively fair maps in place by by next November and we're going to have like real elections in the state? Yeah, I mean, it's either going to be the legislature's map where if they were smart, they would try to give themselves as much in it as an advantage as possible within, you know, fairly legal parameters or they could do what we've seen in other states designing more of their congressional maps, but where they just kind of go all out uh, in the hopes that they'll be bailed out by, you know, Republican judges somewhere or kind of along the line. But in this case, um, if the legislature produces pretty fairly biased or pretty uh, heavily biased maps, the court's already said they'll, they'll just bring in a special master to do it, which would, you know, pro- create like really, really fair maps, which would mm-hmm. be a huge, huge, huge deal because, I mean, these super majorities are such that not only can Democrats never win the legislature, you know, these le- these Republicans will kind of anoint themselves with all kinds of power, you know, strip the governor of, of his power, kind of the one place where a Democrat can get elected because gerrymandering doesn't affect the, the statewide races. So, yeah, I mean, it would be a massive deal and not least because in our current political dynamics, some of like the most kind of radical right wing 
legislating is coming from these super, super gerrymandered state houses. So unwinding those, you know, obviously huge for just democracy in Wisconsin, but also huge in terms of the kind of, you know, quote unquote, laboratory of autocracy type thing. More of this scintillating content after these messages. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Back to the show. So one thing that listeners might be wondering that I was wondering is why did when Protasiewicz got elected, you know, why did they just go at the kind of legislative maps, which is, I mean, it's true. The legislative ones are really gerrymandered, but the congressional maps in Wisconsin have consistently given them a 6-2 Republican majority. So I kind of looked into that and it seems to be a combination of factors, which includes just the way the state is laid out is that Madison and Milwaukee are the super, super kind of democratic powerhouses. And then everything else is red, which is not a rare state layout, but it is just in terms of how concentrated those voters are in the metro areas. So some experts think it might not even really be possible to gerrymander a situation where Democrats can get many more than kind of two super reliable seats right? just based right. on how people are dispersed in the state. And then also, if you go at the congressional maps, then, you know, re our earlier conversation, well, there's no question that the U.S. Supreme Court can get involved then, you know, if you're dealing with federal, ele- uh, federal legislators and federal elections. And I think people are kind of opting on the side of if we wouldn't even necessarily get a lot of boom for our buck, let's kind of keep the Supreme Court out of this as cleanly as we possibly can. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that is, I mean, as you said, that and and this is this is something for always for everyone to remember that gerrymandering is a huge thing, but history has done a significant amount of gerrymandering as it is by you know, it, it's 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 not polarization but just concentration of voters uh, you know uh, liberal voters in in cities and more dispersed in rural areas and that's just a fact and 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 gerrymandering these two things catalyze each other you you know you have that urban concentration and it makes gerrymandering a lot easier um, so that's probably the probably the answer there but as we've discussed many times on the show just the gerrymandering of the of the state legislature is a huge huge deal huge huge deal and you know for for it it obviously affects even without the courts getting involved you know if it's possible in in 2030 or conceivably even before then if the democrats control the state legislature they can they can redo the maps and if right. you know if if uh if if they redo the maps and there's a democratic governor it's not really clear where the supreme court's going to if i don't know if they get in on sort of you know discrete and insular like you know 
white communities in in, in rural Wisconsin, where they're going to go with that. Right. I mean, and this is such a situation where the only way any of what we're talking about is possible is Protasiewicz's election, which is a huge deal because those were not elections that Democrats used to win very much. You know, that's a sea change in the way our electoral politics work, that the very kind of civic minded, reliable turnout voters used to be so Republican. And that just turned on its head, you know, in the Trump era so quickly, like in a way that, you know, politics doesn't often change its dynamics at lightning speed like that. But, you know, ever since 2016, I mean, vast majority of these special elections and particularly the special elections that have big ramifications like this have gone to Democrats. Yeah. And I think I think that the consequences of her election give us some understanding of why after they made those initial impeachment threats, even the quite feral state Republicans in Wisconsin felt they needed to draw back because I think a lot of people could see like, look, okay, you have a, you have a gerrymander. It kind of locks you down, you know, whatever. What, what's the solution? Well, governors, Supreme court, whatever, that if you just, if, if you, if you cut off any democratic, small D democratic solution to this problem, that was going to have there were just a lot of people who were not okay with that. And I and I think they also sensed that aside from public opinion, legitimacy, you know, whatever, they could very well have a replay of this Supreme Court election coinciding with the 2024 election. And having, you know, kind of put their thumb in the eye of voters you know, then it's going to turn maybe a whole presidential election or a Senate election or whatever. So there's, you know, I, I think that it was too much. Even they, totally. even they saw and sense that it was too much. And we've seen kind of parallels in other places. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, in Ohio after right, right on the heels of the abortion amendment passing, you had Republicans saying, well, we're going to, you know, put it up again next cycle kind of thing. And then it's definitely- Or ignore it. Or just say, right. well, this this didn't really say what you thought it said. So and sorry. that's definitely super dark and concerning, the fact that the Trumpian kind of refusal to ever accept an election loss is so part of Republican DNA now that there's like no election where that doesn't come up in a small way, even if they don't kind of follow through on it. But it's a similar thing in Ohio where I think kind of the big reason that they seem to similarly have kind of backpedaled off those threats is they recognize the electoral potency of these things and don't want to kind of put it before voters in any form again and have it cost them more than one race. Yeah, and I, I think too, you know, one of the things, and this 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 maybe even feeds into the stop the steal stuff in 2020 and stuff, that those threats of impeachment, the, you know, functionally similar things we saw in Ohio, which, you know, a big, a big popular verdict, and then the state legislators are like, uh no, or maybe no, or something like that. I think what we see there is the muscle memory that state legislators get when they are used to having such decisive gerrymanders. Because, you know, it 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 doesn't come up in really red states. 
because they're really red states. It may also be gerrymandered, but it doesn't need to be gerrymandered, right? You're not going to get a liberal Supreme Court candidate in Alabama or Idaho or something like that, where gerrymandering counts is in, you know, marginal states. And obviously, uh, Ohio is much redder than Wisconsin, but still, it's it has a lot of big liberal, you know, urban, urban areas and, 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 and stuff like that. And it is a feature of extreme gerrymandering that you start getting le- state legislators who act like that, who think like, wow, we just had a kind of a big election where like the public overwhelmingly disagreed with us. And our response is, fuck that. We call the shots here. You know, that's muscle memory you develop yep. with ex- extreme gerrymandering. So, and it also, anyway, yeah. it also reminds me of something that came up in our recent conversation with um, Heather Cox Richardson, which is another uh, pod we did for, for listeners who might not have heard it yet. But this idea that strong men or people emulating them have to move very quickly. That speed is a really important part of establishing these kind of regimes because you need to go fast enough that people don't have time to think about what's going on, to, you know, kind of rise up against what's going on. You just do a ton of stuff and you do it so fast that people can't pay attention, can't keep up, are overwhelmed, are kind of disengaged, all that kind of thing. And I never put it in those terms before. And I thought that was such kind of a helpful construct in understanding this stuff, you know, because I I was looking back in advance of that conversation and realized that Trump had done the quote unquote Muslim ban like a week and a half after being in office, you know, like that is what we're talking about, the, the moving really fast thing. And I think both of these situations in Wisconsin and Ohio, immediately in the aftermath, I think you had evidence that there was some hardcore band of these legislators that were like, no, like this loss is unacceptable and we are going to unwind it, whether that be through impeachment or a dueling ballot initiative, whatever. But they couldn't really rile up enough support to put that into action and then weeks drag on and then it's too late. I mean, you can't, you you missed your window of speed, you know, and then all of a sudden it's just starts looking kind of pitiful. People are not as like riled up as they were the very night where they had to watch Protoseowitz like give her victory speech, you know, all that kind of ebbed as time passed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that really is it's something it's something basic in all politics it's i wonder if it is unique or especially the case with authoritarian political leaders but it is certainly the case that if you want to change things if you want to change big things you move quickly you mm-hmm. you take the initiative you start changing things when your opponents are still f- figuring out how much they're going to let you change and what their strategy is for not letting you change things. And, you know, Trump Trump did a lot of that. And, yeah, I mean, you know, and what you just said was a really great point that this is not solely fascist behavior, right? Like, I remember at the beginning of Biden's term, this is what a lot of people were saying for him to do, like, do a lot of stuff really fast or the Supreme Court can't keep up and can't knock everything down. You know, it, of course, that's not really how legislating works in a system with this many veto points. But it's a, it's a good point that it, this is a strategy turned to fascist ends often, but is not kind of solely in their silo. 
Yeah, I mean, it's something. It's something basic. You know, we've talked before about how how some of this stuff aligns with military strategy that you're trying to overwhelm your opponents and trying to use shock value to your own advantage that you know i think one of the points that that some democrats were making uh early in 2021 is okay sure some of this stuff's going to bump people out but do it all at once and you you know <laughs> you, you concentrate all their bummage in a few weeks and it's done <laughs> yeah. and 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 kind of it's it it's over and and you, you know concentrate it all when we have sort of de facto control of Congress and everybody's still in shock over January 6th and is what it is. So it's not it's not exclusive to uh, authoritarian movements, but authoritarian movements have in many ways a special need to a need for speed because they're not as concerned about popular opinion. Right. Right. If you're if you're if you have confidence that that the public is going to validate you, you don't have as much need for speed. Now, politics works in in funny ways. It doesn't it doesn't always exactly equate to public opinion. So that that gets complicated. And then you obviously shape public opinion. But in any case, it's a it's it's an important dynamic to think about. And uh, politics as it should exist has various norms in place because that's just you know that's sort of the the tendons and soft tissue of a of a political system right yeah. uh and and authoritarians anti-democratic forces are inherently more eager to get rid of those placed to their advantage right because power is the only thing for them so let's wrap up our final pod of 2023 with a little chat around a post that you put up, Josh, where you ended by saying, against all the odds, against the sheer vibes of it all, you still are feeling fairly optimistic going into 2024. So why, why do you feel that way? Yeah, you know, I've written before about how I think there is, it is the ethical way to approach life, to approach it with an optimistic perspective just because that's the that's a good way to be in the world. But that's not what I was talking about here. I was talking about just kind of my hunch, you know, my uh, a predictive hunch. And I don't really have exactly a sense of why I feel that way. There, there's no, uh, you know, there's pieces of evidence here and there. There's a lot of continuing, you know, kind of good economic data. Not that that seems to have mattered terribly uh, over the last 18 months. And uh, there's even some, you know, in relative terms, optimistic polls that have come out, uh, you know, re relatively speaking. But I don't know. I just, I, 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 th I think that's the best way for me to put it. I'm not exactly sure why, and there's no particular evidence point. I just have a kind of a global sense that a lot of the things that people are and we are and I have been, uh, you know, seen as, as ominous are maybe either overblown or they're running their course. And, and I, w I was struck because I've gotten a lot of as you've said, we've gotten a lot of, you know, some just in the way our email system works here at TPM, there's our main email 
address that we all get. So everybody sees those. And then we have individual emails. So some of them come just to me, some of them come to the group. But we've had a lot of people saying, yeah, I don't really have any idea why I feel that way either, but I kind of feel that way too. So it seems to have struck some kind of <laughs> of chord for whatever reason. It's funny because this is how I've been feeling for kind of a long time as well. And it's interesting because my mom posed me this question where you know, if I am God and I get to choose right now, would I choose like Nikki Haley to win the election? The good obviously being you avert a Trump presidency, you get like what counts as kind of a normal Republican by today's standards. But obviously, then you're sacrificing the the chance that Biden might win. And I just, it's funny because I w- would not take that cosmic deal, that kind of democracy preserving deal, because I still like feel rather bullish about Biden, which is so kind of counter to the global narrative we've had for like months at this point. But I think for me, it just it continues to boil down to I just still have not heard a compelling argument why Trump would be a stronger candidate than he was in 2020. The only argument of that shape is that Biden is a weaker candidate than he was then. And I don't buy that. Like, I I buy that people are dissatisfied with kind of the pressure points in the economy that predated Biden, that maybe we were less angry about during the pandemic because we had other stuff on our plate. And now you're reemerging to a society where everything's still too expensive and wages are not you know, matching the the growth of products and blah, blah, blah. And I, I hear all that and I think it's all true, but it's just really hard for me to wrap my mind around a reality that vague economic discontent and or concern over foreign affairs, which don't tend to kind of be central in, in Americans' perception of the world, even given that, you know, both Israel and Ukraine have been kind of singularly potent potent given how far off they are and given that Americans usually don't like super care about stuff that is happening on foreign shores. Even if all that's true, I just, it doesn't seem to me that package to be a compelling argument that Biden is so weakened by those kind of amorphous things that all of a sudden a felony indicted Trump who's going to spend his next few months going in and out of courtrooms while he tries to campaign, that that is a stronger person than Biden, even if people are not excited about it. And I just it also feels familiar to me, like people have never been excited about Biden. So I don't I think part of this is acting like it's such a colossal shock that young people are not buying riding with Biden merch the way that they were when it was Obama. Right. And I just like, why would we think that anyone would be excited about him now? You know, and then you have the earnest response of like, well, he's been a better president than anyone could have expected, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, yeah, but only people who are like really into politics are going to know that. Right. So for everyone else, it's going to come down to like this kind of uncool grandpa or the guy who is like personally responsible for rolling back abortion rights and who is can't stop talking about being a dictator and who might go to jail. I mean, it's just, I I have, that's, that's the cause for my optimism. I just have yet to see a really compelling argument for why 
this, the latter is going to win out over boring grandpa besides people kind of saying like, well, we're really far out from the election. And like, there's other stuff going on that people don't like. And that tends to redound on who's in the White House. Like I, I can live with that reality and still feel, you know, cautiously optimistic about 2024. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I've had those thoughts about this coming election for a while. And there is stuff like the dictator stuff. You know, he, Trump posted on Truth Social a couple of days ago, or maybe yesterday, you know, word cloud, one of those things where, it, you know, sort of they run the numbers of how you use words and, you know, the ones you use a lot show up really big. And the words were, you know, revenge, dictator, all these <laughs> crazy words. And this is him posting it, right? <laughs> and, you know, when I saw that, I was like, I'm not, I'm not buying that this is gonna, that this is gonna work. And I, I have, as, as I've, as I've expressed at various points over, you know, over the last year, over the last six months, I have always thought Biden's position was better than people thought. It's still like, not like I'm saying, oh, he's got it in the bag. I'm not even, I'm just, you know, I'm not even going to show up to vote. It's so it's so it's it's so done. I'm not I'm not saying anything like that. And and again, I just I just kind of have a hunch. And it's not like I mean, look, I I've spent a lot of the fall kind of like, man, this is looking pretty bleak. Like not just not just the the, the presidential kind of like, man, everything is looking bleak. Like what is going what is going on here? I mean, I I I, I set aside the immense tragedy for so many people of what has happened in Israel-Palestine over the last two and a half months. I think when the youth protests got going, and here, let's let's set aside who you agree with or whatever. Let's look at the sort of the functional reality of Democrats need a big youth turnout, right? Just, just, just the coalitional realities of that. I think a lot of the people a lot of people looked at that who were kind of looking towards 2024 and just thinking like, okay, I guess everything's going to go wrong. And so I'm like, whatever, like, I'm not even going to care. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to go on vacation because like we're maxing out and everything that could go wrong. I, I felt a lot of that too. But again, going into the new year, I just kind of have a hunch. And you know, one thing a reader said, I'm going to, and I'm going to try to publish some of these reader emails today and maybe into tomorrow said, and I think this kind of brought it together in my mind. That it's not, and this is not saying it. It's certainly not a, a a negative on Biden. That this is really not Trump Biden. This is the Democrats versus Trump, and it really is because th th that's that's just the reality. And how did Democrats kind of do in elections recently? Pretty well. And this isn't just like a slogan and cutting Biden some slack. It is just not the case that Democrats are going to have a solid year in 2024, you know, do well as they've kind of done in, in, in several successive elections and Biden loses. That doesn't make sense. That does not add up. And maybe that is part of my sense of, you know, general optimism. Uh, but in any case, like I said, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll stick with where I started, which is I, I can't really point specifically. This is just kind of where my head's at and what my feel of the situation is. And I'll 
you know, I feel I'll leave it at that. This has been our position on the show for kind of forever, which has been we are aware of the vibes. We are at times infected by the vibes. It's impossible to avoid them, especially when this is your job. But the idea that vibes, these vague emotions that are a year and a half out have already kind of decided how things are going to go is just it's kind of silly. It's not really what elections turn on. And I actually thought one of the most heartening data points in your post was the polling that had been done on these other kind of hot shots in the Democratic Party, you know, like Gretchen Whitmer, um, et cetera, to kind of see how they fare in a head to head with Trump. And Biden did better than all of these other people who are constantly named whenever it's like Biden shouldn't run. And I found that really heartening because the only way I think that is very concerning is if there is this deep, unfixable problem with the Democratic brand. And if that was true, we would have seen evidence of it by now. These special elections would not have swung for the either, you know, Democratic candidates or Democratic causes, especially by such large margins. I really feel strongly there would have been warning signs. And I actually think Mm -hmm. the warning signs we've seen have been that there is a deep branding problem for Republicans that they have to grapple with. And I think the reason why those things haven't been kind of put together in the bigger narrative is because we are still and forever operating on this assumption that Trump won against all odds in 2016. So he normal political calculus doesn't apply to him. He is an entity unto himself. He's different. He's not of the Republican Party. But I just think that's kind of silly. Like I and I think Trump has been brought back to earth by subsequent elections. I mean, he did lose in 2020. And of course, he's not divorced from the Republican brand because the Republican brand is Trump. That's all there is to it. There have never been a truer metaphor for that than when the party platform just stopped putting anything out and just said, we're just supporting Trump. Trump." Exactly. Yeah. 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 So I don't know. That's why I think it's a it's hard for me to buy that it's the Democrats who have this big unfixable problem when you're kind of looking at their opponents. Yeah, no, it's not. And to your point, it's, it's, you know, it's not just lack of warning signs. It's, it's the reverse. You know, we've, one of the interesting things about the last two years is that we, the sort of the meta narrative of all political news has been, bad for democrats and so we and we keep having this thing about okay that's weird they just they just had another solid election like what like okay that's that's weird i mean it's you know there have been other political moments where the vibe is party a is doing well and then party a does well and kind of like okay that was the vibe so no surprise and and it's that disconnect so you know everything all the all the evidence we see is is the contrary and again if it is if it is the case that well let me let me backtrack if it were the case democrats doing really solid but they just got this old teetering freak who won't leave then you just say okay whitmer or that Shapiro guy or Newsom, just stick them, stick them in. And suddenly it's, it's, it's 60, 40 or 55, 45. And it's not. And that again, and, and I'll just, I'll just conclude on this front. Like I'm sure, I'm sure some of you are listening and saying, oh, you know, looking on the bright side or fooling yourselves or whatever. None of this is Panglossian or kind of everything's in the bag. Next year is going to be really tough. It's going to be a close election. A lot of things could go wrong, but I, you know, I don't think it's going to. I could be wrong. 
but that's my that's that's my hunch based on what I'm seeing now. And it seems like at least some of you are kind of for equally inexplicable reasons. I mean, I can't tell you how many of your emails I've seen over the last 24 hours where you say like, yeah, I can't really figure it out either why I'm feeling kind of optimistic. Like, what's my problem? Um, <laughs> you know, but there you are. So in any case, whether we're right or wrong, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a good vibe to end the year on and start the new year on. And uh, just for everybody at TPM, let me, let me, let me say a couple things. First of all, as we've said a million times, we are a member supported organization. That is our business model. Something like 90% of our revenue comes from your subscription fees. So thank you. Right for everyone on this podcast, uh, listening to the podcast, who is a member. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for believing in 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 what we do. Thanks for supporting what we do. We really appreciate it. Um, we 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 try to always keep that in mind. Uh, your support for us and and how much we appreciate it. And just you know, with the year concluding, let let me restate it on all of our behalfs. It's it's a big deal. We really appreciate you, and uh, you're having our back as an organization, making it possible to do what we do. And uh, anything else to to add to that, Kate? Yeah, I, I want to definitely emphasize that and just add, this is a year where some of the Trump-inspired kind of media boom across the landscape has faded a bit. You know, this was kind of not just for us, but for basically every outlet when Trump was elected, right? Everyone rushed to buy subscriptions and to read a lot of news. And that has petered out a little bit since Biden got elected and people are less nervous. And so I just want to put the fine point on it that in years like these, when it's maybe a little bit less exciting and sexy to, to read the news all the time, it's hugely important for us and, you know, in, in keeping us afloat and helping us be able to do the podcast kind of on top of what we do for the website. So, you know, double thank you for that. And beyond the monetary support, thank you for the the kind of constant intellectual, spiritual, emotional support. You know, I maintain that our readers have always been a very kind of special breed. And it's nice to get to have a relationship with our, you know, listeners and readers that's beyond just kind of being our financial engines. That's also really contributing to how we, you know, think about things, what kind of questions we ask, um, you know, sending us and pointing us in directions and giving us tips and help and insights to help us get there. So, you know, you've always been um, just a very special group and I feel very grateful to get to be a part of this organization. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm inspired by your saying that, Kate. And <laughs> I'm, as I said, inspired by our readers and members and listeners. So um, if you're hearing this before the new year, have a great New Year's Eve, and uh, we will hit the ground running beginning of the year with a new episode of the podcast. And we'll talk to you then. See you in 2024. See ya. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor in chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. Music